Hey, it's Pastor Mike. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and make it a regular part of your day, can I ask for your regular support? We really can't make any of our sermon series or devotions without the continual support of friends like you. Time of Grace, in case you didn't know, is 100% donor-funded, meaning it is your gifts that make it possible for us to use television and print and digital media to share the good news of God's amazing grace. Just click on the link in the episode notes, and thank you for all of your prayers and all of your support. God bless. So this week, I want to tell you a story about a dinner party. A dinner party in the Bible that almost didn't happen. A dinner party when one person said one thing, and all of a sudden people are fighting and finger pointing and yelling. One person gets up, leaves the meal. That's what I want to tell you about. And maybe you're thinking, that just described any holiday meal at my house where we fight and we get angry and we get upset. And man, that happened in the Bible. What we're going to talk about this week is the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And the cool thing about this is if you are brand new to Christianity, you're just starting to dip your toe into what this whole church thing is all about, you've probably seen it. You know, people come forward to the front of church and they get something to eat and something to drink and it's this, this holy meal, a special thing, and they sit down and you, you've seen it but you maybe don't know that much about it. Or even if you've been a, man, a lifelong Christian, we don't know that much about the backstory of communion. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pull back the curtain. We're going to go in that upper room with the disciples and with Jesus and see the intrigue, the fighting, the feuding that's going on. And we're going to find ourselves there as well. So this whole thing happened. It all goes down Holy Week. Now, what's Holy Week? That's the last week of Jesus' life here on this earth. It starts on Palm Sunday where Jesus decides to have this impromptu parade with one float, just Jesus. And he goes into Jerusalem and no, no candy's being thrown, but the, but the people throw down palm branches and they throw down their, their coats and cloaks for Jesus to walk across. And they're, they're thinking Jesus is going to be this king that overthrows the Romans. And the week goes on. Thursdays, we're going to spend most of our time. Good Friday, where Jesus dies. And of course, Easter Sunday, when Jesus comes back to life. Now, this dinner party, how did it happen? Matthew chapter 26, mostly that's where we're going to hang out. And so Matthew tells us the disciples go to Jesus and they go, Jesus, where are we going to celebrate this Passover meal? And there's intrigue, there's confusion with their question because already it's too late. It's as if Jesus failed already and you can hear that a bit in the disciples' question if you understand a bit the background. All right, so let's back up 1,500 years. About 1,500 years earlier, God spoke to a prophet and a leader of the people known as Moses. And Moses wrote down the laws of the people, how they're to worship and live. And one of the laws God gave is that every year, the Israelites should all go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover meal. And so Jesus is there to celebrate with his disciples. But this city, Bible scholars, Bible smart people, think that the city might have swollen by 70, 80, 90,000 plus people. There's no room. There's just no way that the disciples and Jesus are going to find a room to have this meal on the first day when everyone is there. And so they're thinking, Jesus, come on. You failed us. But Jesus, he's all calm and cool. He says, all right, guys, just do this. Go into the city and as soon as you get there, you'll, you'll see a man right at the city gate 
and he'll be carrying a water jar. Now, follow that guy, and the house he happens to go into, talk to him, and he'll have room for us. It sounds like a fool's run, right? If all of a sudden I came up to you and said, let's go to the Super Bowl. Let's go to the Super Bowl on the day of the Super Bowl. All you got to do, my friend, is go downtown and find a guy walking a poodle with a pink scarf. The dog's got the scarf, not the guy. And while he immediately passes by a payphone, good luck finding one of those, follow that guy, and whatever house he goes into, he's going to have Super Bowl tickets for all of us. Are you going to go, there's no way. Because it's just me, I'm just a guy. But when Jesus said that, the disciples went. And guess what the Bible said? They found it exactly how Jesus said it would happen. And why? Because Jesus never fails. He's always got a plan. Now in your life right now, where do you think, God, you're, you're failing? This part, this part of my life right now, this is all messed up. This isn't working out. And God, you, you, you're failing me. Where are you? Where's your power? Where's your, where's your presence? All you got to do is be like those disciples and step out in faith. Step out in trust because why? Well, it's Jesus. And Jesus has shown you in the Bible and he's shown you through the cross. He will never, ever, he'll never fail you. So come back tomorrow. We're going to look a little bit deeper into this account and we're going to see how, how one thing that was said erupted a fight. Man, it's going to sound like a dinner party at your house. We'll see you then. In yesterday's talk, we looked at how Jesus started the New Testament Lord's Supper, got everything in place for them to go into that upper room and have the special meal. Basically, Jesus told his disciples, go into the city, find a guy, follow him, and you'll find a, a place hidden, waiting, just for us. Basically, Jesus had a guy. He had a guy. And so he set everything up. Well, now we're in the room. We're in the room with the disciples. Jesus um, is eating the meal that's been prepared by those disciples. Now, a couple of things that they're eating. They're eating lamb roasted over the fire. Bitter herbs would make your mouth just pucker up and go nasty uh, facial expressions when you eat it. And also bread made without yeast. These are some of the things that they ate during this meal. Now, I'm going to actually talk on that on day five. Come back. Kids, that's called foreshadowing to find out the pictures behind why those things were there. But they're eating this meal. They're hanging out and all of a sudden Jesus says something. He says, I tell you the truth, one of you, one of you will betray me. Now, as soon as they hear this, of course, this is just destroys the conversation. Imagine you're at your next holiday meal. Aunt Irma stands up and says, I tell you the truth, one of you is trying to kill me. <laughs> if that actually happened, you'd you'd probably stop your conversation and look directly at her and go, what in the world is going on? And the disciples did the same. They, they, they stopped their chatter that's going around and they looked directly at Jesus and they're just confused. Now, put yourself in that room. If you're in that room and Jesus all of a sudden says, I tell you the truth, one of you would betray me here. When you instantly go, whoa, oh, Jesus, whoa, not me. I, I totally wouldn't do that. But that's not what the disciples say. When you read scripture, one by one, each one of the disciples looks directly at Jesus and says, surely not I, Lord. You, you, you don't mean me, 
Lord? And they, they say it with a question. Shouldn't they have known? If tomorrow um, a police officer shows up at your school or at your work and busts in all angry and says, I tell you the truth, one of you stole my police car. Would you literally need to stand up and go, well, surely not I, police officer. I mean, wouldn't you know? You'd think the disciples would know, but they don't. Because each one of them has something that you have. Each one of them has something that, that I have. And we all have doubts. We, we all have questions. We have things that don't add up, that don't make sense to us in the Bible. And I'm telling you that as a pastor, a person who studied the Bible because, well, there's a sinful nature inside of me. It's fighting constantly against the faith that the Holy Spirit has, has given to me. And so there's a struggle, there's this doubt, there's this, I don't get it, God. And I'm sure you have that too. I tell you, this side of heaven, we're all going to have it. We, we absolutely will. Because think about it. If, if we could take God, all the greatness, the grandeur that is God, and put God neatly into little boxes and we can understand every aspect of him, well, then how great is he? How amazing is he? And so we're going to have doubts. We're going to have questions. And let me tell you, I've, I've had person after person that has come into my office when I served as a pastor of a church in Florida. And now I serve as a pastor at a school in Minnesota. And same thing, I've had person after person, student after student, come in and say to me, I don't, I don't know if I have faith anymore. I have all these questions. I literally have all these questions written out. And you know what I told them? That shows you do have faith. In fact, that, that shows you have big, bold, beautiful faith. Because faith wants more of a relationship with God. Faith desires to learn about God and have God grow in your faith and in, and in your heart. And so I'm telling you right now, if you've got doubts, if you've got questions and you want those answers, that's why you're watching this. You've got faith. Bold, beautiful faith. And the thing with faith is, it doesn't matter how big your faith is, how strongly you understand God, how strongly you are holding on to God. The thing about faith is, faith is about how powerful your God is and how strong your God is and how strongly he's holding on to you and God will never, ever let go. That's a truth that the disciples are starting to learn. And that's a truth I hope you continue to grow in. Come back tomorrow. We're going to go back into this room again. We're going to see what happens after each one of those disciples says, Surely not I, Lord. And I'm guessing you might not know the answer. I'll see you then. So when Jesus dropped that truth bomb on the disciples and said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They instantly asked that question, Well, surely not I, Lord. But after they wrestled with that for a little bit, then all of a sudden, naturally, the question shifted. Well, if not me, well then who? And suddenly, they're, they're looking around the room, sizing up their competition, sizing up the other disciples that are there, trying to figure out who it is. And here we are, 2,000 years later, armchair quarterbacking this thing going, Dummies! It's Judas! Like, he's right there! If, but we know it. We know it because Matthew told us. Before this account, before we get into Matthew's description of the upper room and this question that Jesus said, or the statement Jesus said, he tells us 
that Matthew tells us that Judas actually betrayed Jesus. That he conspired with Jewish religious leaders to hand Jesus over to be destroyed, to be betrayed and, and to die. And so we know this. They didn't. If you've seen any Christian movie, um, instantly you can tell who Judas is. Any Christian movie on this account, there's Judas. He's, he's lurking in the background, right? He's dimly lit. He's got shifty eyes. You know instantly who Judas is. But they didn't. They were confused. And so Luke then tells us that after Jesus makes this statement, a fight broke out among the disciples. And the fight isn't, I think it's Judas, or I think it's Matthew, or I think it's Simon. The fight breaks out over which one of them is the greatest. Because they can't figure out who it is. And more than likely, they don't think it is Judas. Because do you know who, what Judas's job was? Judas's job among all the disciples is he held the money bag for all of them. If you went out at a party and for some reason you had to put all your wallets and purses and one person guarded it, who are you going to pick? Probably the person you trust the most, right? And so they trusted Judas. They probably didn't think it would have been him. So this fight breaks out not about it's that person or this person, but Jesus said, couldn't be me. The fight breaks out about how great each one of them is. Once again, the disciples are failing. Jesus knew this about them. He knew that they constantly fought over who was the greatest among them, jockeying for position among Jesus. And so, actually, earlier in the night, when they first got in there, Jesus did something truly humble and truly remarkable, something his disciples needed to learn. They'd come in with their, their dirty, nasty gross feet because they walked in sandals. Now, that doesn't sound that gross. You wear sandals if you go to the beach or go to the pool. But they wore sandals all the time. They walked everywhere. And animals did their, their business on the road, so that's going to get on their feet. They're going to recline at the table, their feet next to the food. And so they'd always wash their feet. None of the disciples wanted to do that because they thought they were the greatest. But what did Jesus do? Jesus humbly, lovingly, took up his outer clothes, wrapped the towel around his waist, washed his disciples' feet, and told them, I've given you an example, and I want you to follow this. I want you to do as I have done for you. And not that long later, what do they do? They fail. Again, they made it all about themselves. I do the same thing. I, I do. I constantly make life about me, my wants, my desires, my joys, and I'm thinking I'm not by myself. We all do this. We all fail and just make life about ourselves. And so Jesus knew he couldn't just wash his disciples' feet and give them that example. That wasn't enough. He knew he needed to do more, and he did. He gave his true body. He gave his true blood on the cross just hours later so those disciples could have what they so desperately needed. God's mercy. Jesus' forgiveness. And God's given that to you. He's given the same blessing to you. And God wants you, in that forgiveness, as you've repented to God, to know that A, you're forgiven, and B, if you want joy, true, lasting joy in your life, you need Jesus, then focus on others, and then yourself. And let me tell you, life changes. That's the truth Jesus is showing you here. And now, I want you to come back tomorrow. We're going to see how Jesus lovingly, mercifully deals with Judas, even though this man betrayed him. 
It's pretty amazing. I'll see you then. So we're almost there. We've almost made it to Jesus taking bread and taking wine and, and starting the New Testament Lord's Supper. But before we get there, we, we've got to take a pit stop. We've got to look at how Jesus interacted with Judas. An incredible, merciful way that Jesus um, lovingly talked to him. Even though Judas is going to betray Jesus and Jesus knows this. He knows the suffering. He knows the death that's before him. But yet Jesus, who wants all to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth, cannot stop reaching out to him. And so Judas is in that room and Jesus, or Judas joins in with everyone else and says, Surely not I, Lord. I, I didn't do this. And yet Jesus knows that he did. Judas refuses. He absolutely refuses to admit his guilt and his wrong because he's, well, he's scared. And I guess I don't blame him. Do you know who's in that room? When you take a, a step back and when you look at who is in that room, of course, Judas is going to be terrified to admit his guilt. Now, let's pause for a second here. When you read the Bible, so often we read it just really quickly, the surface read. But don't do that. Put yourself in the room. See the sights, smell the smells, understand the depth of what is happening there. And the Bible opens up so much wider. In fact, the Bible says that if we wrote down everything Jesus did, there won't be enough books in the world to contain it. So the Bible's got to be written at this like 30,000 foot flyover. But don't leave it there. Because if you do, it'll seem like stories about those people back then as opposed to what it is. God's word for your life right now. All right, so let's put ourselves in the room. Let's be with Judas. And he's looking around and who's in that room? Well, there's James and John in that room. Do you remember what their nickname is? Their nickname is, of course, Sons of Thunder. And why? They got their feelings hurt. And one time when they were going telling people about Jesus at a different town, the town rejected them. And they said, Jesus, Jesus, can we call down fireballs of heaven to destroy the city? And so they got a bad temper. They're in the room. Peter's in the upper room. Peter, who just a couple hours later pulls out a sword and knife and tries to take out a whole mob by himself. Peter's in that room. You've got Matthew in that room, who used to be a tax collector. Now, tax collectors today is a lot of numbers crunching and computer software programs. Oh, but back in Jesus' day, if you're a tax collector, you got your taxes, you got your tax money by kind of being a mobster. It was a strong-armed and beat-you-up way to get money. So you kind of have almost like a mob boss in the room in Matthew. You've got Simon the Zealot in that room. The Zealots were, well, zealous for all things old Jerusalem. And if these disciples are still thinking Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans, well, then he is going to take out Judas before Judas can take out Jesus. And then scarier of all for Judas is Jesus. Because he knows his power. In fact, earlier this week, Jesus is walking and he sees a fig tree and he wants to get some figs off the fig tree and there's nothing for him there to eat. He curses the fig tree and it withers and dies. And so he's in that room. So Judas is, is terrified. Don't you get the same way? I do. When someone confronts me when I have messed up, when I've done wrong, I'm not quick to admit my wrong. In fact, I'm just like Judas. This is what we do. We tend to either deflect what we've done wrong, we project 
onto others, or we just reject, saying, whoa, I, I didn't do that. And you see all of that in Judas. Judas is trying to deflect. It goes, whoa, surely not I. He tries to project onto others by joining in with that fight that's happening over who is the greatest. Attention on them <laughs> is an attention on me. And Judas flat out rejects and says, whoa, no, I didn't do it. But Jesus is lovingly coming to Judas. When you read this account, the other disciples don't even know it's Judas. Jesus so mercifully, so lovingly comes just to Judas, hoping he'll accept, not reject or deflect or he wants him to accept what he's done wrong. If you're struggling and if you got hurt and you've got pain in your life, you know why? It's because you've projected onto others. When someone else confronts you and you're saying, you go, Who, how dare you? Who are you to? You know what you're doing? You're projecting and not accepting. And you're going to live in that pain and live in that hurt. If you deflect and go, oh, it's, it's not that bad. <laughs> All these other people are doing it. And so it's socially acceptable. So it's got to be okay with God. You're not going to be okay with God. If you flat out reject and say, whoa, no, that isn't me, when you know that it is, and you're just trying to save face or feel better, you in the long run will not feel better. That pain, that hurt is there. And so Jesus lovingly calls you out. Jesus lovingly calls me out with parents and teachers and bosses and spouses and kids and friends. When that happens, don't be like Judas. Instead, accept. Accept the responsibility. God, I've I have sinned and God, I have done wrong and God, I am so, so sorry. And you repent. Don't just feel bad. Repent. Judas had remorse. Oh, he had such deep remorse. After Jesus got executed and Jesus got killed, Judas threw the money back inside of the temple. I want nothing to do with this. He had remorse, but he didn't have repentance. And so he had guilt. And he destroyed himself. If your life is hurting and in pain, don't just feel badly. Don't just have remorse. Have repentance. And know that when you confess your sins to God, that God's love for you, God's forgiveness for you will never end because God's forgiveness is immediate and permanent and given to you. That's what Jesus was trying to give to Judas. But Jesus can give and does give to you. Let's come back tomorrow. Tomorrow we are going to finish this up. We are going to look at Jesus starting the New Testament Lord's Supper. You don't want to miss it. I'll give you the details on a special meal that they ate and give you the gift of what God gives to you. I'll see you then. We did it. We made it. It's day five. And throughout this week we've been hanging out with Jesus in that upper room as he's been setting everything up to give us this New Testament Lord's Supper, something we call communion. We've checked out the disciples, they're infighting, they're feuding, we've hung out with Jesus, reaching out to Judas to draw, to draw, to try to draw him back. And here they're having this, this special meal and now Jesus is going to give you a special meal. A meal that gives you the power, the love, and the mercy of his forgiveness. And all that comes out of that Old Testament Passover meal. Earlier this week, I told you some of the dinner menu items that were there. That they ate uh, roasted lamb over the fire. 
And that was a picture of Jesus. If you remember, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, Jesus was that sacrificial lamb. And through his blood shed on the cross, Jesus going through the, the fires of temptation, the fires of hell for us, forgiveness then is granted. In that Old Testament Passover meal, they pulled out bitter herbs and they ate bitter herbs. And that was to remind them of what their sins do to, to God. It's bitter in the mouth of God, that the sins, the wrongs that we do. They also ate unleavened bread. Because the original Passover meal was of the ten plagues when, when the Israelites are in Egypt. And so they're praying, God, please get us out of slavery. And as soon as the Passover meal happens, the uh, Pharaoh finally says, you can leave. They didn't have time to make bread, put yeast in it to rise. And so God is reminding them that through this meal, God brought them in the Old Testament deliverance. And so, amazingly, then Jesus takes that bread, reminding them of deliverance from slavery, and he puts the New Testament in our Lord's Supper. He takes that bread and he breaks it. He gives it to his, to his disciples and says, Take and eat. This is my body. Jesus gives that over to them and now is going to give them freedom from their slavery to sin. After the meal, Jesus takes a cup of wine. And he passes that to the disciples as well. And he says, now this, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. In the New Testament Lord's Supper, what God grants to you, what God gives to you is himself, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. And much like how that Old Testament meal, they ate bitter herbs, it reminded them of their sins as they confessed that to God. So also when you come up for communion, God encourages us to, to open our hearts before God, to confess our sins and our weaknesses, our insecurities, our infirmities, everything that's there, and give that over to God. And what does God give you? Love, perfection, healing, and forgiveness. There's two final things I want to teach you in connection with the New Testament Lord's Supper. And here they are. Here's the first one. If you're new to church, and you haven't gone up for communion yet, or if you've been a lifelong Christian, you've been going to communion, I want to teach you something about the brilliance of God. God gets us, because he made us. He gets that we're tangible beings. Something has to be there for us to fully understand it. At the beginning of the worship service, in most churches, there's a confession and forgiveness of sins. Maybe at your church it's really formal, it's called a liturgy where the pastor speaks and the people speak and it's this back and forth thing and there's the confession of sins and the, the pastor announces forgiveness. Maybe in your church it's a little more contemporary where it's in a song or it's in a prayer. My question for you is this, what is the difference between the forgiveness that's given at the beginning of the worship service, just announced verbally by the pastor, and the forgiveness that's given and received in communion? And the, and the difference is there's no difference. But yet you go to communion and you feel so connected to God. And why is that? Because God gets us. He connects the intangible, his forgiveness, with something that we can touch, that we can eat, and know and feel God's love. 
Final cool thing I want to teach you is the original way that they, taught, that they ate the Passover meal. God commanded them in the book of Exodus, eat that original Passover meal with your sandals on your feet, your cloak tucked into your belt so you could run, and your staff in your hand. That seems really strange. <laughs> if you invited me over for a dinner party and it was raining and I kept my wet shoes on, my wet jacket, and my car keys in one hand and ate, I would think, wow, this guy does not want to be here. But God is telling them, hey, through this original Passover meal, as soon as this is done, I'm busting you out of here. I'm giving you what you need. I'm giving you freedom from your bondage of slavery. And the New Testament Lord's Supper, God does the same. God also delivers you from a lifetime of sin and shame into his gracious arms of love. That is the gift that God has given you. And his true body is true blood. His love, his forgiveness. Hope you understand communion quite a bit better. May God bless you and give you great joy as you live for him. Looking forward to seeing you next time.